Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. The emergency department is often the first point of care for patients with an elevated suicide risk, such as patients with self-harm or substance abuse disorders. In fact, over 40% of individuals who die by suicide have an ED encounter the year before their death, and patients treated in the ED are twice as likely to die by suicide in the following year than the general population. So it might make sense that we would try to screen patients for suicide risk in the ED, as the Joint Commission mandated a few years ago, but does that screening actually work? Today we're discussing a new paper in AEM entitled, Suicidal Ideation is Insensitive to Suicide Risk After ED Discharge, Performance Characteristics of the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale Screener. We have first author Dr. Scott Simpson here to discuss it with us. Scott Simpson, MD, MPH, is Medical Director of Psychiatric Emergency Services at Denver Health and Hospital Authority and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He is a national expert on the treatment of behavioral emergencies and author of The Clinical Interview, Skills for More Effective Patient Encounters. We're excited to talk to him about this new study, and don't forget to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Hi, Dr. Simpson. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's get into um, let's get into your paper, but let's do a little bit of background first before we get into the meat of the study. So in 2019, the Joint Commission mandated that emergency department patients who were being seen for behavioral health conditions in the emergency department had to be screened for suicidal ideation using a validated screening tool. And I, uh, there were a few. I, I actually didn't even know that until I read your study. But, um, so today we're going to be looking at one of their recommended screening tools, which is the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale Screener. Uh, which we will call CSSRS from now on because it's just a, it's a mouthful. Um, so how did it come to pass that the screening was mandated in the emergency department? What what compelled the Joint Commission to mandate this in the first place? And so the CSSRS and I guess suicide screening in general in the emergency department has undergone a few evolutions in the last few years. Back in 2016, the Joint Commission actually published a Sentinel event alert that healthcare organizations should screen all patients at all encounters for suicide risk using an evidence-based tool. And so in the wake of that Sentinel event alert, there was a sense that there needs to be universal suicide screening. I think more recently, the Joint Commission has dialed that back a little bit so that only patients who have behavioral health conditions in the emergency department should be screened for suicide risk using an evidence-based tool. And the Joint Commission makes a few recommendations um, and, you know, there is another discussion about the challenges of doing universal screening um, in this context. Um, but the Joint Commission over time has kind of dialed back the requirements a little bit. And in short, those come out of a recognition for the high acuity um, behavioral health presentations that are coming through emergency departments. We know that about 40% of persons who die by suicide, in fact, have an emergency department visit in the year before death. And so while the specific approach to screening in this environment is evolving a little bit, there's, I think, at this point, a clear consensus that this is a high-risk environment and an opportunity for intervention. All right. So so let's talk about this screening tool in particular, the CSSRS. Um, 
Can you describe it to us for, for those who don't use this tool and, and what was known about its performance prior to your paper? Sure. So the, the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale is a longer instrument that's designed to ascertain uh, suicide risk and suicidal behaviors. And it was actually the original tool is a much longer instrument that's really aims to figure out if patients who have recurrent self-harming behaviors have engaged in an actual suicide attempt uh, under circumstances where those patients' motivations, reasons for acting may be a little unclear. And so from that longer tool, the group developed a shorter practice screener, which is really the instrument that we're looking at in this study. And the shorter CSSRS practice screener is a three to seven item instrument. Um, it gets as long as seven questions if you're answering yes. There's some branch, branching logic there. And in essence, the, sc the screener asks patients, are you having poor mood symptoms? Are you having thoughts of self-harming? And then if you're answering yes to those questions, it dives into have you um, made preparatory behaviors? Have you engaged in self-harming and when that's happened? And based on those answers, this, the there are triage criteria that define no or minimal risk, low, medium, and high risk categories. The tool was originally published about 10 years ago in a paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And, what, and they described the use of the triage screener in a few research studies, but it had never really been studied in real world practice as came to be recommended by the Joint Commission. Okay. So to this date, no study has validated the shorter screener CSSRS's ability to actually find patients at high risk of suicide or self-harm. Is that correct? That's correct. The original studies looked at smaller trial populations and self-harm, but they really didn't look at the outcome of death by suicide. And again, they were in smaller trial populations rather than, for example, a general emergency department setting at scale. So so you wanted to look at that. So your study sought to look at the performance of the screener in predicting suicide among all patients presenting to the ED, uh, as well as its performance in predicting self-harm or, um, or suicide attempts. And so you described its predictive performance for those two outcomes, suicide or revisit for self-harm in the presence of some other clinical variables. So first tell us about the study setting and the participants and when did this take place? Sure. So we, so I, I mentioned a little bit about the evolution in universal suicide screening. And so around 2016, the Joint Commission was pushing out kind of this idea of universal screening. And so our hospital, Denver Health, actually implemented universal suicide screening in our emergency department. And Denver Health is a safety net, an urban safety net hospital in here in Denver, Colorado, affiliated with the University of Colorado School of Medicine. We have um, an adult emergency department, level one trauma center, integrated psychiatric emergency services. Um, we also have a level two trauma center, urgent care and emergency department for um, children as well as part of Denver Health's larger safety net health system. We looked at a period when our emergency department was using the CSSRS screener for all patients coming into the emergency department, in essence, universally, starting in 2016 um, until uh, sometime in 2018. So the, the primary outcome was death at 30 days and then within 365 days. 
And your secondary outcome was suicide attempt or intentional self-harm within 30 and 365 days as defined by the patient having an ED encounter with a relevant diagnosis code. So, so tell us more about your methods and how that data was reported. Sure. So we looked at, so in, in that study timeframe from 2016 to 2018, it was about 27 months. We caught every adult patient coming into the emergency department who had that screener data available at their first encounter. So each patient only contributes once to the data set. We obtained their, their CSSRS scores at triage. And it was it's usually triage nurses who are collecting this data as part of their intake into the ED. Um, and then we looked at outcomes from a few sources. For mortality, we looked. We worked with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, who operates our vital records registry, and so they gave us data back um, on whether the patient died and how they died within 365 days of the visit. For self-harm outcomes, we worked with the State Hospital Association. The Colorado Hospital Association obtains information on encounters at all emergency departments and urgent cares in the state. And we counted a self-harm outcome as occurring if a patient had a visit at one of those EDs or urgent cares in the state and had a, a diagnosis code that was defined as self-harm by the CDC. And the CDC maintains a list of ICD-10 codes that define this outcome. Okay. So let's talk about your results. So first, let's talk about how the CSSRS did in predicting suicide completion at 30 days or 365 days. Yeah, so the, we found that the CS, a positive score on the CSSRS was indeed um, associated with a death by suicide um, in multivariable analysis. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But in short, the screener was really insensitive to death by suicide after an ED discharge. So for example, when we looked at patients who died by suicide within 30 days of their ED visit, the sensitivity was only about 18%. So the vast majority of patients who are dying by suicide after an ED visit are scoring negative on the screener. And that was also the case up to 365 days out. So the area under the curve um, suggesting kind of the ability of the test to discriminate um, between positive and negative outcomes was about 57% and the confidence interval crossed 50-50, suggesting that the test is perhaps just a bit better than a coin toss in predicting who's going to die by suicide after discharge. Well, that's a little disappointing. How about um, for suicide attempt or self-harm? So the screener was a lot better um, as far as detecting the risk of self-harm subsequently. So there, your area under the curve was more in the 75% range. And most patients who had a subsequent visit for self-harm indeed scored positive on the scale, on the CSRF. And I mentioned that, in fact, a positive score was associated with death by suicide. So we did a multivariable analysis looking at the performance of the screener being positive or negative in the context of some other variables like having a mental health diagnosis, being hospitalized, a male sex, which we know is a common suicide risk factor. And we found an odds ratio of about five, um, albeit with a wide confidence interval. But, you know, what we think is like we identified with the screener population of patients who are at risk. However, as a screening tool that really didn't do a good job identifying patients who are going to subsequently die by self-harm. Okay. So one thing I was surprised about was that in 
you know, what was supposed to be universal screening at the time that about 20% of the encounters did not actually have screener data and had to be excluded. So um, what happened in terms of the suicides and self-harm in that group? When we looked at all the encounters coming through during this time period, there were about 20% of encounters that we had to exclude because they were missing screening data. And as listeners of your podcast will know, working in busy EDs, there are all kinds of reasons patients don't answer. They are intoxicated. They're coming in by ambulance for a trauma and they don't get asked. Um, this was also during a period when we were rolling out a new electronic medical record locally and it was a new policy. So sometimes people weren't just getting asked for staff training reasons as we were launching. And indeed we had some more missing data earlier in the study period than later. But what was interesting about it is when we pulled the when we looked at this population, we actually saw that this is a fairly high risk population. In fact, the suicide incidence among patients who had no screening data at all was higher than among those patients who had a negative CSSRS score. And so, you know, given that a lot of hospitals are using these tools, ours as well, to triage mental health resources in the setting, this was, I think, a pretty interesting finding. You know, typically if patients say no, they don't get mental health care, which is what we found in this study. So of the patients who died by suicide and had a negative triage scale, only about 10% received mental health services. And that number was similarly low among patients who were missing data. And, you know, that's, um, you know, you, that's the kind of insight you only get when you do these larger population-based real-world kind of effectiveness studies of these tools in practice. Right, absolutely. So uh, your findings overall obviously leave a lot to be discussed about universal screening for suicide or even just screening for suicide in the ED and whether it's actually helpful in suicide prevention. And so, so what are your thoughts on this after looking at this data and the data that preceded it? It's complicated, right? So I think, I think there are a few things that really stand out to me. So one is, um, you know, we have a lot of these tools designed to ascertain suicide risk. And I, I start by describing these as kind of like phase one, phase two drug trials. We have some tools that have been designed in um, very small, in smaller research samples um, among very specific populations, perhaps at higher risk, um, they only really look at self-harm outcomes rather than suicide mortality. Um, and so we're at a point now where we're trying to see whether those um, those tools are applicable to the broader world of clinical practice. And that's I, that was one motivation for me and our group in pursuing the study. And we found that, you know, this is just a different population. We can look at suicide outcomes that you can't in a smaller study. In the real world, you're depending on your clinical staff doing other things rather than research assistants. And so the practicality of this tool and the outcomes related with it look different in clinical practice. Um, I think, you know, another thing that this raises, and so in my mind, when we look at these tools going forward, we now have the ability with EMRs and data and records linkage to look at real world outcomes. And I would be very, I, I would be really hesitant to make further recommendations for the use of these tools based on smaller sample sizes, especially in the ED setting where, you know, we can readily access large numbers of higher risk patients to look at these tools in practice, if not real time. I also noted that, you know, among the patients who died, even those who had positive scores, 
the vast majority of mortality is not by suicide, but by other causes. And we're not the first to recognize this pattern. Um, certainly, this is a population at high risk of suicide, and we need to think about how we're leveraging that ED encounter to reduce the risk of suicide. However, even among patients who screen positive for suicide risk using this tool, 80% of them are going to die by other causes, overdose, trauma, um, you know, under treatment of medical illness. And we know generally that patients with mental illness die five to 15 years younger than the general population. And so in my mind, this is really a call to think about how we provide emergency psychiatry and who we provide it for. We can identify patients at high risk of suicide, and we also need to think about how are we intervening, intervening upon these other behavioral and social determinants of health for our patients in the ED. I think that's fascinating. And I think that um, one thing that I'm taking away from this is that I, I, I think that before reading your study, I had this false sense of reassurance when a patient would screen negative for a suicidality. Um, and I don't think that I should have that anymore. Well, I, and I love the way you put that. When we teach suicide risk assessment, you know, for example, the American Psychiatric Association guidelines list, you know, dozens and dozens, 100 plus risk factors for suicide. And one of those is suicidal ideation, right? So there's a whole world of other risk factors involved um, besides mm -hmm. suicidal ideation. And we have now invested so much at a systems level in positive suicidal ideation that I worry that we're missing our chance to intervene upon the greater population of patients. And so, for example, you know, obviously, well, obviously, you know, hospital settings, positive SI prompts, constant observation, a lot of intervention, and that's happening in this population as well. So we have to recognize that that might drive down some of the outcomes, right, um, as far as suicide in the positive CSSRS category. Um, but that said, there's clearly a large population who are not receiving treatment services that remain at risk. And, um, and you know, they're not being directed services by hospital, uh, by hospital policies. Um, in the community, we see often that patients cannot have certain levels of care like psychiatric hospitalization authorized by insurance companies if there's no suicidal ideation present. And so they're not accessing care. And, you know, it's also an interesting angle that will be not be unfamiliar to your listeners is how we deal with symptom exaggeration and malingering in the emergency department. And so, you know, we've designed the system now where if you present to the waiting room with suicidal ideation, right, your ESI level is a two, and we're going to shuttle you back from that waiting room and give you all kinds of resources and connect you to care. And, you know, when people look at rates of symptom exaggeration or malingering, and especially emergency psychiatric settings, you know, the numbers are something like 25 to 30 plus percent of patients are suspected to be malingering. And, you know, I think we have to think about, you know, how we're driving some patient behavior in this context. And for patients, of course, it's completely adaptive, right? Like they need those resources. The only way they can get it is if the presence of SI. And certainly they're using that strategy because they have a lot of other comorbidities, a lot of other adverse social determinants to psychiatric and medical care. But you know, we're also, um, um, but, you know, we've also created the system where, you know, we're devoting a lot of resources to patients. And I, I question whether or not we're directing those resources as efficiently and effectively as we can. Right. And I think the inverse of that is something that I would always worry about too, is that the, the patients who really are quite um, intent on carrying out a suicide plan and really don't want you to intervene with them are 
are the ones who are going to tell you falsely, no, I don't have suicidal ideation. So this is, it's a tough, this is tough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a well-recognized phenomenon. And, you know, the folks who really understand that well are people in veterans affairs health systems. And so, you know, the VA has long been at the forefront of screening and intervening upon suicide risk. And, and they've published nice articles and they can tell you about their own clinical experience in which, you know, veterans will say that they're not, they don't have suicidal ideation because they feel like it's being asked perfunctorily, or they're worried about what will happen if they say yes. Will they be involuntarily hospitalized all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so th there's a whole dynamic that goes into asking that question that makes it, you know, I'll just say it makes it tough to get a truthful answer, but it really makes it tough to have, I, I should say maybe a better way to phrase it is it makes it tough to have a genuine back and forth. And so, right. you know, asking a patient, do you have suicidal ideation in a busy ED waiting room? Right, at triage. Is, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, who, what, I, I, I would conjecture that what the patient hears is not, do you have suicidal ideation? What they hear is, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. And those are different answers. And they also really limit how we think about the provision of behavioral health services in this environment, right? Like, I need to focus on suicidal ideation rather than focus on severe chronic alcohol use, opioid use disorders, methamphetamine use disorders, um, somatic symptoms and overprescribing of opioids. And so these are all behavioral health related presentations associated with clear morbidity and mortality that we don't look at because we're, you know, and probably rightfully looking at suicide risk, but really looking at a specific population with suicide risk. Well, Dr. Simpson, thank you so much. This has given us a lot to think about, and I look forward to hearing about future work in this area. I really appreciate you having me on, and thank you for all that you do and all your listeners are doing for their patients and communities now. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.